Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative, and today we have again Scott Wilson. We've talked before about transport funding and getting roads built. Today we're going to be going through a bit more on the history of how we funded and financed roads, but more on the structures of getting roads approved. So there were some really interesting reforms that had been proposed in the late 1990s that didn't really end up going anywhere that we could be, well, it could be interesting to look back at again on how to progress better roading currently. So I'm delighted that Scott's able to go through this with us here today. He knows the history of this a lot better than I do. So Scott, welcome. Thank you very much, Eric. Yes, New Zealand has gone on quite a bit of a journey in terms of how roads are funded and the the structures of of how we manage and govern roads. And we've gone on a path where from the 70s and the 80s, it was much more traditional where basically the the minister would decide what would get built. There'd be a national roads board. It would get a lot of local submissions from local government. And there'd be basically a political ranking of projects and the Ministry of Works would then be the monopoly road builder and would go out and build them. And in some cases, that'd be a great success. In other cases, it'd be less of a success. In some cases, that'd be held up in industrial action like the infamous Mungary Bridge in Auckland that took around about, I think, seven years to build from when construction started because of industrial disputes. Uh, but, but through the reforms in the 80s and 90s, there was a decision to operate a, a few different principles on how you look at the, the road network and treating roads as, as not just some, I'd say, political plaything that, that gets varying levels of priority, but to get it uh, professionally managed and funded and have a great more certainty in funding. Well, maybe before we get into that, I'm curious a l- little bit more on the Ministry of Works option because you hear... Well, at least on Twitter, a lot of people hearkening back to that era that we should just reestablish the Ministry of Works and get billions of tons of cement and start building roads again through that kind of a mechanism. Now, I'd always kind of wondered about that. If you've got some central agency like that that's making these decisions, how, how did they incorporate local knowledge? How did they rank projects? How did that really work? Well, it's an engineering-based ministry, and this is a ministry that is... You know, full of engineers, and they weren't just building roads. I mean, they, they were building dam, power dams, they were building schools, they were building everything. And I see why you know, some people find that quite appealing. But it, how, how do they rank things? Well, they use cost-benefit analysis to help inform some of their decisions. But basically, this was a process of ranking by a political decision. So take, for example, if we, early 1980s, what used to happen every year was that each region of the country would have a district roads board. And this would be comprised of representatives from the councils in the local area. And they would do a bit of analysis about what matters to them. And this is state highways and local roads, the whole lot. They would do a bit of cost-benefit analysis. If they had projects that they liked that had high cost-benefit analysis, say this should be the number one project for our region. And so they'd put up the list of their wish list and it would all come together and the National Roads Board, which was a part of the Ministry of Works, would meet. The Minister of Works would chair that and they would sit around and pick what was going to be funded every year. They would decide what was going to be spent on maintenance, what would be spent on road projects. And you know, it was a trade-off between, I'd say, some you know, bureaucratic and, and economic factors and ultimately, it was a political decision. So if it came to election year, you could imagine what some of the things that would happen in terms of picking projects. You know, if it were parts of the country that weren't so important politically, they'd get less funding. And 
things got built. Was it the right things that got built at the right time? Well, I think probably not. And this is this is why things moved on from there, because the prioritisation process was a combination of politics and engineering. There wasn't really any feedback from users and what users wanted or, or you know, willingness to pay. And it was done on an annual basis. So every year there'd be a budget for this. Uh, would there be certainty to build a uh, to complete a project? Well, not always. And perhaps one of the examples here in Wellington is Wellington's Urban Motorway, which started getting built. It was built from Naronga through into the city. And when you get to Bowen Street, you notice it starts to narrow. And that's because in the early 70s, the budget was cut. And they said, oh, we can only build one terrace tunnel now. So they started building the ramps for the second one and then just stopped it. So there's this waste in building a bit of a road that doesn't get used. And, and New Zealand's actually got a few of those dotted around. Quite a lot of them have now been completed. But there was over-engineering in parts of the country and under-engineering in others. Sounds like a mess that needed to get fixed. So how did they start approaching that structural reform? Well, there was a number of different factors that they, they were thinking at. One of them was, you know, do we really need to have a central government monopoly that builds everything? Um, so decided that contracting out and competitive tendering um, should be a way to, to build projects. But in terms of how to decide what you should build, they set up an entity which was, was called then Transit New Zealand. And why it was called Transit New Zealand, it also included public transport funding. And that was an entity that was to be a professional state highway manager. So we didn't have one before. The Ministry of Works was the state highway manager. So the, road, the, the state highways were managed by the road builder. And the UC, it didn't really assess itself in terms of its own performance. If they built something not very well, they go, well, you know, it, it kind of got internalised. Whereas with this new entity called Transit New Zealand and with competitive tendering, they would, you know, the contractors would have to build to their standards and, and meet what they wanted to do. So it started assessing projects mainly on a cost-benefit basis and making those decisions about you know, what was the right thing to do with money. And that started a process to apply that to local government as well. Local government used to do the same thing. They had their own works departments and how they prioritised that was, again, a political decision. Councillors would decide... You know, what projects would go ahead and they'd sometimes get central government money for that and this was trying to put together a process where the central government contribution would be based on what local government did to prove the value of those projects and they introduced asset management I mean one of the big reforms that's completely ignored I think people take for granted is we didn't have asset management for the road network until the early 90s so this is having an infantry about what's your network how many bridges have you got? What's the condition of them? When will they need to be replaced and upgraded? This is all innovation, largely started in New Zealand. There are part, large parts of the United States, they don't even do this today. So what that did is you start to get an idea about you know, what is the gap between the way the network is and the way the network should be. And you see some parallels in water today where getting to understand the state of your network is a pretty important factor in understanding how much you should spend on it. Neat. So these are the reforms of the sort of late 80s, early 90s, Transit New Zealand comes in. At what point did they start hypothecating excise so that road users were paying the cost of, the, of road maintenance and not having the money siphoned off for other stuff? It was, uh, well, th there's a couple of factors. I mean, the, the siphoning off kept going on until about 2008. But a part of it, uh, the, the initial process was that government used to, in the budget process, say this is how much money is going to roads. It would happen to resemble part of the money that came out of fuel excise and road user charges. And then 
as this is done on a year-by-year basis, having certainty of funding year-by-year was something that, that came up as being quite important. But Treasury was resistant to hypothecation at the time because, of course, they want to have access to all of the tax money. But, look, it was 1990, 1991. The government of the day you know, significantly cut back spending in all areas. They did it on roads as well. And that had quite a devastating impact on road maintenance. It meant that there was a lot of deferred maintenance and... This is when the call came that we actually needed some certainty about how much money would go into the network. And the first stage was to say that every year the budget allocated to it would be 97% of what it was the previous year. And that provided some certainty. And a few years after that, they got to labelling that a certain cent per litre of the fuel tax was permanently hypothecated into the roads fund. Well, unless there was a change of legislation. But the, it was basically, un, unless government changed their mind, you'd have some certainty that it was a stream of funding coming in every year from road user charges and fuel excise. So the money that came from road user charges and fuel excise that didn't go into maintenance, was that for CapEx for more road building or did it go into other stuff entirely? It was, it was, it was basically a pool of money for funding of, of land transport. So it would go, there'd be road maintenance, could go into road capital, there was part of it into public transport as well because they, they were supporting you know, bus and rail services in the regions and there was other money for other activities such as land transport safety program. So that we started getting a little bit more certainty then about funding flows. So there'd be less year-on-year variability. Companies that were doing the road maintenance would be able to start planning ahead a little bit. You'd noted before, or we'd, we'd talked before off- offline about reforms that were proposed then in the late 1990s. What sorts of problems were remaining that were giving rise to the need for continued structural change? Well, this is the, moving on from a period when I think uh, there was a lot of austerity and funding was tight. I mean, at the time, the benefit-cost ratio for funding capital projects on roads was 5 so that's quite a high threshold, and, and that tended to favour mostly projects that had a high safety benefit, or ones where there was a very you know, a very low-cost solution to fix a bottleneck. But it was understood that there was actually a big backlog of projects that weren't getting built, and the question was how do you fund those projects, and is, this, is the system as it stands robust to be able to do that? And how do you get the right signals as to, as to how to fund that and how to be innovative? And it was noted at the time that there's a number of innovations coming along in, in technology. I mean, it was very early days of the internet. No one really knew what was going to happen with that. But the idea of road pricing was also on, on the, in the back of their minds, where it was, you know, technology was starting to make that something that you could do. You wouldn't need to have toll booths or anything the like. How do you get that started? How do you move on with that? You know, should government make a decision that we're just going to do it from day one? Or is it easier to sort of devolve that responsibility to entities that can make those sort of trade-offs and those decisions? So part of the thing that drove the reforms was to start to think, how do we address the sector which has very high capital costs, that has very poor price signals from users, and doesn't have very good signals in terms of innovation? It's still fundamentally engineering-driven. I mean, Transit New Zealand is still fundamentally driven by... a people who are road engineers and very good at it and did a fine job but the philosophy at the time and if you look at reforms in other sectors was to look at what would serve consumers and what would look after their interests they're the people paying for it after all and to try and move to a structure that was more reflective of that. So what was the structure that wound up being proposed? The structure that that they were looking to to implement was commercialisation. So the state highway network would be moved into a government-owned company 
it would be required to pay tax, make a profit, and so there'd be a return on capital, and it would have powers to borrow. So it could borrow for capital, and then it would receive funding from the funding agency that did exist at the time called TransFund. And the idea was that, and also local roads would be the same. There would be the, the number of, I think it was 74 at the time, local authorities that were road managers would be combined into a much smaller number, and the arguments whether it would be four, six, eight, or 12, neither here nor there, but it'd be a consolidation of road managers. And they would all have a similar structure with, with similar powers. And the funding agency would be buying road services on behalf of the motorist. So you'd pay your fuel tax or pay your ruck, and the funding agency would basically say, look, State Highway Company, we're going to buy this level of maintenance, this sort of capital spending because the public wants to reduce congestion, it wants safer corridors, and it would be a sort of buyer-provider relationship. But it'd be a relationship that over time could transition. So if you're a major customer of the road network, you could form a direct relationship with the state highway company, for example, maybe a trucking fleet, and pay them directly, just and, and then not pay road user charges to central government. So that would be much more like a utility model where you could choose to pay the government to buy road services on your behalf or you could pay for, pay for them directly, and this would enable some form of road pricing over time. So if they were going to market for debt, this was entirely from the road charges that they'd be collecting, there wouldn't have been recoursed it back to central government if anything went wrong, or how was that structured? Well, I mean, ultimately it would still be a state-owned entity, and if, if, if everything fell over, central government could could pale them out and, and save them. And you'd think under conditions like we've recently had with COVID, that might have happened if it had been implemented. But by and large, it would, be, it would have to stand on its own feet. It would be like other state enterprises like New Zealand Post and the, and the energy companies. So these proposals were coming in through the late 1990s. Uh, how were they received? Well, there, there was a bit of a mixed reception. I mean, this, this, this came after a long period of structural reform for many parts of the economy, starting from 1984. And from a local government point of view, a lot of them didn't really much like it. And there was a quid pro quo for local government, is that they would lose the direct powers of control over the local road network, but they wouldn't be wouldn't need to fund the roads anymore because part of the proposal was that road user charges and fuel excise would be increased to fully fund the whole of the road network. So at the moment, there's on average a 50% financial assistance rate. So local authorities get half the funding for their network from the Land Transport Fund and ratepayers pretty much pay the rest. The idea was that we take ratepayers out of the equation altogether and fully fund it from users so it would be an integrated network. Uh, that would mean that councils would be expected to lower lower rates but that wasn't really good for a lot of councils i think a lot of rural councils saw that they were going to lose a big part of their reason to be some rural councils you know, roads are are their by far their biggest activity and the urban ones saw that they were going to lose some power and influence over a lot of spaces that are actually about urban space and place and and just losing that control was something they didn't want to do and there was some concern that this would be a precursor to privatisation, given there'd been privatisation in recent years in other sectors. And I don't think there was a lot of public appetite for it. I don't think the case was really strongly made as to you know why the public should support it. So it was fairly muted in terms of response. Concerns about privatisation are probably overstated. It would seem difficult to 
sell off an SOE that has all of the roads without getting into some pretty serious legal issues. Oh, look, exactly. You've got issues around the Public Works Act. You've got Treaty of Waitangi claims. It would be a difficult a difficult exercise. I mean, there are bits of it you could probably sell off. And look, when, when roads are bypassed, bits of road get, get sold off all, all the time because they're no longer needed for a state highway. But yeah, it'd be a very, very... It'd be a very bold government that that decided decided to do that and and not try and back that entity if anything happened to it, particularly if it's getting government funding. I mean, it's it, you're a long way removed from being able to say, look, to stand back from it and treat it like you know, Japanese motorways, which are privatised and they've got tolls and and they operate as businesses, but they were government owned businesses originally. So we're twenty years on from that. What lessons should we be drawing from that experience, both on different ways of structuring? roading networks and their funding so that we can get proper value for money in this stuff and not overbuild, but also meet demand and the political lessons on ways of affecting reform that don't get stymied. I think there's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting that following on from those proposals, uh, some other countries have gone part of the way down that path. You'd look at Austria as one of my favorite examples where the federal highway network is a basically a state-owned company. It collects charges, road user charges from trucks and cars, actually makes money out of electric vehicle charging stations along its network as well, and pretty much fully funds itself. It gets, I think, 99% of its funding comes from those charges. The rest is you know, there's EU contributions, which are kind of not, not particularly relevant in this context. And it pays taxes, makes a profit, will even deliver dividends to the federal government if it doesn't get reinvested in the network. There's a lot of direct accountability to to users and borrows money on capital markets or borrows money from the federal government financing agency and to spread the cost of large projects over many years. It, it's, re, it's a way of getting around the problems of the pay-go system, you know, pay-as-you-go where you're trying to fund capital out of current revenue. And it's just you just can't do that easily. And New Zealand's already started down that path with some projects where, which are debt funded but it's been on an ad hoc basis whereas this would move capital funding to being the, how you do the, the highway network yeah so then if you have that kind of a split between the provider and the purchaser and they're trying to get some reflection on what demand is and what people want to be what roads people want to be using i guess that gives you then some certainty about what the revenue flows might look like to back the bond afterwards and get a bit of commercial decision making in there too exactly so you'd start to take some some value about what the risk profile is for the network and around demand, and particularly at a time when we're looking at peak commuting travel in cities is not coming back to the way it was, and you know, there's maybe a long term trend there if you look at look in other cities around the world that that suggests that you know past behaviour is not a predictor of future behaviour in this regard. So maybe some projects that were around peak urban congestion get valued less, whereas projects during that deal with interpeak congestion or other delays may be valued more. But also, I think you're right, having a funder-provider split means that you can have some accountability for what are the what's the right projects to fund and what is the performance of the entities delivering us. And having some sort of oversight and regulatory oversight about how they're performing is something, it's a bit opaque in the New Zealand situation. In, in England, there's the Office of Road and Rail, which has oversight over national highways, which is the which is the company in England that runs the motorway network, and it has to uh, report on their performance um, every year. 
And they've got another entity called Transport Focus, which has input from users to feed into the funding decisions and to feed into the priorities that, that users have. So we, we don't really have very good tools for feeding in what user preferences are in New Zealand, and we don't really have that independent oversight. Uh, it's all sort of combined into one entity at the moment that's doing a lot of things. I just love the idea of the roading network having to pay a dividend back to the government that includes cost of capital because the land in urban areas that's dedicated to roads and that would be owned by this entity is going to be huge. And the opportunity costs of that land in many places are really, really high. And we don't have any good mechanisms right now for allocating across competing uses of that land. In some places, you might imagine that it makes sense to maintain it as roads. In other spots, you might expect that... well. Maybe cycle users would want to buy a section of that off and use it as a cycle lane, or maybe still in other places, close it off entirely and rent it out to the local restaurants to have outdoor patios. And we don't have good ways of adjudicating between those, but if you're forcing a rate of return on the land value, that forces some better commercial decisions around all of that. It sounds really interesting. I think it's, and you've got to be careful about that though, because some... The value of land is also related to the access function of roads. Oh, sure. So to, to say that the value of the road space is equivalent to the land adjacent to it, up to a point. Once you take away the access function for that, you start to do to reduce the value of the land. And uh, if you've got very large arterial roads, you can absolutely make the case around that. It's the sort of thing you'd make the case for, why do you put a big urban highway in a tunnel rather than be on, on surface because you, know, you can have access to that land. And also, I mean... I'm a bit of a fan of tunnelling. You know, tunnels are ex very expensive pieces of infrastructure, but under a pay-go system where you've got to try and recover that over a, a short period of time, you'll do benefit-cost analysis over a period of you know, 25, 50, 60 years. I mean, ultimately, once you've dug a tunnel, you've pretty much dug the tunnel. And the depreciated life of, of a tunnel in European countries, when they look at this, is over 90 years or longer because they understand that actually it's very, very expensive, but the benefits you get from this in terms of the land use and environment, local environmental impacts are quite significant. And we don't, I don't think we, very, we reflect that particularly well. We do it on an ad hoc basis when these sorts of things come along, but it could be done better. What additional lessons might we take from the politics of it in the late 90s? So you'd mentioned that, well, there are a lot of things going on at once and there were some worries about potential privatization. If we were wanting to get towards these kinds of reforms now, what should we learn from it on the political side? I think you need to bring people with you. And I think there was a lot that went on in the 80s and 90s, which was pushing a lot of reforms along at quite a heady pace with the idea that you know, if, if, if you spent too much time consulting, it would just get in the way of doing it. And uh, it's no longer like that. And part of what part of the backlash that happened around um, these reforms was, was local government was we just rejected it and the public weren't on board. So the, the users weren't really on board with this. And one of the, the biggest points was, you know, look, they were selling, we were going to increase fuel tax and ruck to pay for the local roads. And councils were kind of expected, well, they'll just lower their rates and, and the public will put pressure on councils to do that. But a lot of average people go, well, how do I pressure the council to lower rates? When does this ever happen? And they just didn't believe that was going to happen. And... Maybe if you are going to take that step, and you know, to be fair, I'm fairly neutral about whether it should be fully funded from road user fees or there should be some property owner contribution. I think there's probably a case for a property owner contribution. But if you are going to do that, you need to regulate rates down to, to make sure that people don't feel that they're paying twice. 
But I think the, the other point is do it to your own network first. So if if you look to have this sort of separate model, have a separate funding agency, have a separate state highway manager and you know, set up a commercial structure for that entity, that's what's happened in England, that's what's happened in Austria, that's what's happened in a couple of other European countries and see and see how that goes and then, then lead you down the path to what, what you do with the local road network. I mean, maybe... I mean, part of the thing about the local road network is that it's a very diverse network. You have plenty of local roads in Wellington and Auckland, for example, which carry much more traffic than most of the state highway network. And as a result, you know, how do you treat and how do you fund that? Should we be funding those 100% but treat the cul-de-sac in Karori or Mount Eden as you know, it's just a local access road that, that probably should be mostly funded by the people who live there? Neat stuff. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Scott, and I'll look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you.